Hey everyone, it's been three weeks since October 7th where Hamas fighters launched an attack that led to 1,400 Israelis killed. Since then, the siege on Gaza has tightened and over 6,000 Palestinians in Gaza were killed and there seems to be no end in sight. What impact do these events have on Houston? Sure, there are pro-Palestine protests taking place, but how about the effect they have on classrooms and local politics? Lead producer Dina Kespa talks to University of Houston professor Dr. Abdul Razek Takriti, Dr. Daniel Cohen, history professor at Rice University specializing in Israel and Palestine, and activist Hannah Thalenberg from Jewish Voice for Peace Houston about the local, state, and national implications of international events and why it matters for elected officials to speak out about them. It's Thursday, October 26, 2023. I'm Rahil Ramzanali, and here's what Houston's talking about. Dr. Takriti, I want to start with you first. We're going to start with the latest from Governor Abbott. He had said he supports Israel. It's very similar to a lot of the sentiments we've seen from other local politicians. But what is different now that I've noticed is that he's directed schools across Texas to use resources provided by the TEA, the Texas Education Agency, to teach about Israel-Hamas war. That's a quote from the Texas Tribune. What does this mean for schools in Texas? Well, I think it's very concerning, uh, given the fact that they're teaching uh, children uh, a version of history that glorifies uh, what is going on on the ground that does not give uh, adequate uh, knowledge about it, uh, but also that masks realities that are experienced by uh, children in Palestine. There's 2,360 children that have been killed so far by the Israeli state in its horrific and, I dare say, genocidal bombardment of uh, Gaza. Uh, and I'm using the word genocide here very specifically and thoughtfully because there is a clear intent uh, that has been expressed by a number of Israeli politicians in leadership positions, including the prime minister himself, including the minister of defense, uh, that are calling for either the eradication of the population or its forced uh, removal and transfer. Uh, and definitely they're talking openly about the need to bomb everything there uh, without uh, due uh, uh, care for human life. So 5,364 additional children have been injured. Are, are, are our kids talking about that? Are they being taught that? This is a huge tragedy inflicted upon Palestine's children. Not to mention, of course, uh, Palestine's adults who are, have been suffering, uh, who see no future uh, for themselves or for their kids, who wake up every morning not knowing whether they're going to be dead or alive, who wake up every morning feeling like uh, they, they might lose a relative or a friend or a neighbor, and they do. I mean, I, I'm, I'm in touch with many of them uh, uh, as much as I, as I can, given the, the lack of electricity uh, and the lack of good internet and the complete siege on every aspect of Gazan Palestinian life today. But what you hear from people is horrific. And I invite all our listeners to just look at the images and it tells it all. No matter how much 
the governor tries to hide it with this propaganda. Our kids should not be taught propaganda. Our kids should be uh, given the opportunity to hear different viewpoints. We should not be living in a totalitarian state where the governor decides in a very politicized manner what goes into our kids' minds, especially when what he's clearly trying to do is to justify genocide. Mm-hmm. Dr. Cohen, I want to turn to you, given your expertise on this and the specific research that you have done, seeing something like this from our governor, what is your take on that? Right. So to explain the, the governor's or the legislature's um, behavior in this regard, we can go back deep in time or we can go back towards the recent past. So deep in time, it's the continuation, of course, of the special place of Zionism and Israel in what we want to say, the American mainstream. But here, there's an additional layer that is at play is the special place of Israel in red states after 9-11, in particular with regard uh, to anything that looks Muslims or defines itself as Muslim. And what we see in, in Abbott's kind of clumsy attempt at stifling debate is a conflation of the two, not only sort of categorical defense of Israel, but also making sure that the plight of uh, Muslims as victims uh, should not be highlighted or, or let alone talk about. So there is a, a long and short history to it to this story that is now, so to speak, coming into fruition in in maddening ways um, in the public sector and public school or universities, uh, particularly in red states. In addition to this message that Governor Abbott had put out, he also praised the Hilton Hotel in Post Oak that canceled the U.S. campaign for Palestinian rights that was set to happen this weekend. Hannah, as an activist, what kind of message do you feel like this sends? I feel this sends a very discouraging message and one that should trouble us all um, as we see just post 9-11 levels, right, of Islamophobia and anti-Arab racism um, and the legitimization of that by the political establishment, by institutions. Um that unfortunately, I think, would target any venue that the U.S. campaign for Palestinian rights might have used as an alternative, for example. So it is very disappointing uh, to see a hotel canceling on a massively important, massively relevant and timely conference for Palestinian rights um, as a concern of safety for their staff in the face of those who uphold white supremacy and Zionism. So I want to I add something to that, which is uh, to note that this is very discriminatory against uh, Palestinian, Arab, and Muslim communities living in this state. Uh, this is a governor that presides over a state that has a substantial uh, population uh, coming from these communities. In Houston alone, we have 250,000 Arab Americans living here and a good chunk of them are Palestinians. This is not counting uh, the Muslim American community. And our community is diverse. It includes uh, Muslims and Christians alike. 
Uh, we have Christian families that have lost loved ones in Israeli attacks. For example, uh, a, a friend of ours has lost eight relatives in the bombardment of the third oldest church in the world, something that has not been covered uh, adequately in, in media outlets in this state and certainly in this country. The destruction is affecting uh, everyone in this community. The death is affecting everyone. We have not heard a single uh, message of condolence uh, for any members of our community from this governor. Some of them may have even voted for him, unfortunately, but they have, have not heard any form of human compassion being expressed. In fact, I don't think we've heard any compassionate message coming from any major elected official in the state, as far as I can tell. Nobody has sent messages of condolences. Nobody has highlighted the uh, lives of uh, victims, victims who are Texan, families that are bereaved, that belong to the state. So this is discriminatory. In the meantime, we heard many messages mm -hmm. of condolences, condemnation, and uh, uh, utter uh, disparaging remarks emerging from every corner regarding uh, uh, bereaved Israeli families. This tells me that Palestinian lives, Arab lives, Muslim lives, Christian Arab lives are not valued in this country and certainly in this state. And that's a problem we need to address. It's a huge problem. On that same breath of talking about the commentary that we've heard from local politicians, you know, we've seen it from our mayor, we've seen it from Senator Ted Cruz, city council members. We are also on the cusp of a major local mayoral election. We've seen them come out and say we stand with Israel very early on. You know, since then, over 6,000 Palestinians have been killed by the bombardment of Gaza alone. We haven't even talked about, you know, what was happening in the West Bank. What now would you say you are asking of your representatives, of local politicians? What are you hoping to see them do or even say? I would hope at the very least, bare minimum, that anyone seeking to represent a city as diverse as Houston could at least recognize the humanity of Palestinians and and not not in the sense of needing needing to see them as victims but rather agents of their own liberation as integral parts of our community right that's not a problem that's happening over there as Dr. Dacuiti has said, look at our own community. Look at the amount of Palestinians in Houston, the thousands who have come out to actions. Are they not part of your constituency? So a recognition of a humanization of Palestinians um, and a recognition that any peace can't come without lasting justice, right? Which means decolonization and reparations and full equality is empty. Well, I, th I think there is an additional responsibility, uh, which is this country is a direct participant in the current genocide that's unfolding in Palestine. What is unique, in fact, about this genocide is that uh, it was supported and coordinated with multiple uh, leading Western governments. And the United States uh, has even been privy to the discussions 
around uh, the war plan that is currently being waged on the people of Gaza. It is providing the weaponry for it. It is providing the financial support for it. And it is uh, definitely uh, participating very heavily in the politics around it. So this is very concerning. And representatives in Congress, instead of congratulating the Israeli state, instead of amplifying the messages that it wants to, to be amplified in this country, they should be talking about the human toll. They should be rejecting the military aid that's being sent. They should immediately actually cut off and impose an arms embargo in the Israeli state. Instead of arming it to the teeth so that it could bomb civilians in this manner, I mean, honestly, if there was a proper application of international law, U.S. officials at the federal level would be liable for prosecution in The Hague for this. This is illegal under any international law treaty, international law agreement. It is not acceptable. So our representatives are playing a role in this. They're not just innocent bystanders. They're participating in this. They now have a, a bill that's proposed by President Biden. They're going to send up to $14 billion in emergency money to Israel on top of the billions of dollars that's being sent to it every year. It's the largest recipient of U.S. money. You know, when I drive down Richmond, my, my car tires get, get ruined because our streets are not functioning. There are people sleeping in the streets of this country. There are people not getting medicine because of lack of investment in our infrastructure. Instead of funding these horrific wars, we should be focusing on them. And to be honest with you, we should also be focusing on supporting the Palestinian victims of this destruction too. And I should note here that there's a political future that has to be emphasized, and this is another thing that representatives need to be talking about. The politics of how we can restore justice to this part of the world, how we can bring peace for both peoples that live in it, both the colonist Israeli population, which, by the way, comes mostly from Europe and the surrounding region. I should emphasize this. Nobody in the U.S. talks about this. That this is actually a colonial war between an indigenous population that has been cornered into a very tiny strip of its land and a settler colonist population that is very aggressive, armed to the teeth, supported by the world's leading great powers, and that is carrying out a war of ethnic cleansing and extermination. It's been going on for 100 years. So how can we offer a political future? That guarantees, by the way, I love all human beings. I'm an internationalist. I don't discriminate between peoples. I don't think that this is an ethno-religious conflict, as some people seem to suggest. I think this is a colonial issue. And there is a history of shared living between uh, uh, Palestinian Arabs and, and Jewish Arabs that goes back for many centuries. The very idea of pitting Jew against Arab is ridiculous to me because we've always had Arab Jews in our, in our midst. And we were always able to live together. So it's the coloniality of the situation makes it so outrageous and that creates these dynamics and that creates this violence that is, and the utter horror that we're witnessing generation after the next. This is a question for both you, Daniel, and Hannah. Almost always, whenever anyone, they say, come out and they say, we're pro-Palestinian, we stand for 
human rights, we stand for a ceasefire, they're automatically labeled as anti-Semitic or they're seen as alienating Jewish voices. Why do you two in particular choose to stand in solidarity with the pro-Palestinian protesters in Houston, across our state, across the country, the world, really? Um, First, speaking as a Jew, Judaism teaches me that all lives are equally precious. Judaism teaches to be in solidarity with oppressed peoples. Judaism teaches me to pursue justice always. So to me, I am in solidarity with the struggle for Palestinian liberation because not in spite of my Judaism. And speaking as a descendant of Holocaust survivors, I refuse to have our very real trauma be weaponized to legitimize a settler colonial project, a genocidal project. I'm also from Brazil. I was born and raised on the pedagogy of Paulo Freire. And in the pedagogy of the oppressed, he teaches us that in liberating themselves, oppressed people also humanize and therefore liberate their oppressors, right? So it's not that I I want liberation for the Palestinian people. I want it with them, right? I want to extricate Judaism from the Zionism that's appropriated it for over a century. Like, I, I am imagining myself into this future with Palestinians, right, who have been showing us how to envision and work toward a future without settler colonialism, right, in which Palestinian people are living and thriving. Right. Um, Maybe to add to what you were saying, uh, Hannah, I should say that while I understand the the symbolic dimension, so to speak, of of Jewishness embracing uh, the humanity of Palestinians, I enter this situation, um, quite honestly, not as a Jew, but as a human. I mean, it, it sounds cliche, and I'm sure Hannah agrees with me too. I understand the, 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 the dimension of it, and I mentioned the, the necessity of alliances and, and solidarity and friendship, but this is not the determining factor of, of my personal sensitivity to the plight of Palestinians and to the future that Hannah imagined or envisioned. Uh, but the two can work together, right? Uh, we, we can wear different hats in our identities. You know, can I offer an additional refle- reflection from a Palestinian perspective on this? And also from my perspective as a historian of anti-colonial movements, there's a very special function that's played by progressive voices belonging to the settler colonist communities in colonial situations. And I, I just want to remind people of the South African examples. The fact that you had some, a very small number of white Africans in solidarity, and actually not just in solidarity, in active struggle with the ANC and with the uh, South African forces for liberation that were operating at the time, uh, meant a lot for uh, the future of South Africa. It allows people to imagine the possibility of joint living it allows the people who were brutalized, colonized for a long time to envision a future 
that humanizes the colonists, to be honest with you, not because uh, of any illusion that the structural dynamic is humane or that, but it gives and affords people the opportunity to think of it in lines that are not ethno-nationalist. So progressive Jews play a big role in that. And I've, I've witnessed it in my own lifetime. It was very important for me as a teenager reading about this subject to see that there were voices like uh, Ilan Pape out there, for example. Because you can then see, well, there are Israelis who see what's going on, who are brave. Uh, but, it, it, you know, a few voices can make a huge difference that way. And we know this from the history of this country and the struggle against Jim Crow and the struggle for civil rights and the struggle even for uh, emancipation and the ending of enslavement in this country. It was very important to have some folks in solidarity. And it's, it gives everybody inspiration, but also it allows for a process of joint liberation for everybody, the sort of process that Hannah was referring to. So let's move from this politics of power to a politics of emancipation, and everybody will be much better off. Hannah, I want to ask you how it's been like for you as an anti-Zionist Jew getting backlash. What has that been like for you? Honestly, in general, I'm not concerned <laughs> about backlash from how I engage in public forums. Um, I know that anything I may experience uh, is nowhere near the doxing and, and threats that Palestinians get in this country. And on the family side of things, it's it's difficult. Um, I have I have a great deal of of Israeli cousins, whom I've I've had to push myself to be more compassionate with, right? Because they have been indoctrinated from the very beginning of their lives to fear annihilation in a situation where suddenly that sense of of safety of invincibility, right? has been shattered. I I don't want my cousins to be on the front lines of the Israeli occupation forces and neither do they. And it's it's hard <laughs> to be the one saying like no one would need like y'all wouldn't have to be in this position if there weren't apartheid walls to guard, if there weren't Palestinians to surveil, if there wasn't colonial expansion to push their necessary conversations, their painful conversations. So <laughs> that's what we're doing. And at the same time, like my, my biggest fear is to would be to ever become a person who wouldn't stand on the side of justice and humanity and liberation for fear of backlash. Hannah, you've been on the ground in protests. You've been part of Jewish Voice for Peace in Houston. What important information do you think people are missing out on with the lack of coverage in our city? Oh, besides everything that Dr. Takhridi and, and Dr. Cohen just went over. And this, I think, goes back to your to your point earlier about how Governor Abbott is pushing so-called education about the ongoing escalation of Zionist violence through the Texas Education Agency and how this ties back to everything in states such as Texas is Christian Zionism. And so that's both a religious and a political ideology that doesn't have a formal structure, but generally demands total support for the modern political state of Israel 
in order to gather all Jews in Israel, which will trigger the rapture and the second coming of Christ, right? And most Christian Zionists are evangelical and fundamentalist Christians that wield immense political and economic power in this country in influencing politics, especially in states like Texas. And as, as much as accusations of anti-Semitism are leveled, you know, supposedly to protect Jews, like there, there are more Christian Zionists in the United States than there are Jews in the world, right, according to Kristen Sturm. And if we look at a circle, right, between these folks defending this totalitarian Zionist state and the politicians who are trying to dismantle public education, who ban health care for transgender people, who ban abortions and compromise all reproductive health care. That Venn diagram is practically a circle. So that that's a dimension that I've just recently become more aware of and something that I think could unite a lot of movements um, in states like ours. So something that, that I know that I've been missing until recently, even though I approaching any issue, any struggle with a religious lens is new to me. I don't usually show up in movement spaces as a Jewish person first. So that's that's an undercurrent that I think is important to recognize. One thing I want to ask each of you, given how heavy it's been, given the coverage, the situation in Gaza right now, how has everyone been feeling? And I'll start with you, Dr. Cohen. Terrible. Oh, there's no other, no, no other words. We wake up here in Houston and uh, we have the grim privilege of um, knowing the result of the day uh, the minute you wake up, right? And I'm sure you do that. And Abed does that. And, uh, so, um, no, it's, it's a particular, very, very challenging moment um, to be in contact with either Jews, Israelis, or in my case here on the Rice campus, Palestinians who personally grieve at a level of um, grief that is defies understanding when when Abed may be more specific about the numbers. Uh, it, it's it's a terrible feeling. It's a terrible feeling. Uh, by the same token, while acknowledging that this sort of the, the terrible situation i cannot help but nonetheless feel against my will sanitized so to speak uh, the media sanitized this uh, there is a semblance of normalcy here people ask me to go running with them or i teach or i buy food um i'm not affected physically right or financially so there is this uh, weird do sort of dual life on one hand this misery that is in the back of your mind and then the the routine of life here that tells you everything is okay this is very far away and don't look and so evidently these two forces sort of collide uh but i think we all make an effort to roll back the routine so to speak and and consider these times as um as exceptional i actually wonder how people do not look at this time or consider these times exceptional. Uh, how do you do that? Mm. Really? Yeah. Hannah? Uh, wow. So much of um, what Dr. Cohen said uh, resonates a lot. I'm definitely feeling the heaviness each day, the grief for losses that 
are unfathomable and that I feel greatly privileged to not personally have to fathom. And yeah, and, the, and this kind of whiplash that goes on when our, when our everyday life, aside from receiving all of these news, hearing of all these beloveds and comrades um, who are grieving, who are being killed, our, our material conditions aren't, aren't immediately impacted. Um, but honestly, I, I don't want to be okay. I don't want to ever be a person who is okay when there's a genocide happening anywhere in the world, much less one financed by my tax dollars. Um, so there's a lot of grief also in terms of family relations. It's an interesting time to be an anti-Zionist Jewish person and wanting to lean into the hope that I am getting from the Palestinian community because this can only ever end with Palestine being free. And I see I see that march. So trying to practice that discipline of hope, as Mariam Kaba would call it, every day as I see Palestinians' example. Dr. Tikriti? Yeah, Dina. Look, I've been living in this issue all my life. I was born into it. My grandparents were expelled from historic Palestine. My grandfather was expelled from Haifa. My other grandfather was unable to go uh, back to his hometown of Taibe. My grandmother told me stories of 1948 that, that are horrific. I knew about her experiences. I knew about experiences of, of many others. My mom had horrific experiences in 1967. And, and these are not very political people, by the way, that I'm telling you about. In many ways, actually, they were trying to just survive after experiencing these these horrors of ethnic cleansing and constant assault on their lives. Uh, it's exhausting, and I've never seen anything this bad. I've never seen anything this horrific. They've taken it to the next level, and they were really bad before. I'll be very honest with you, Dina. It was, it was always terrible. But the number that they've just butchered in the past two weeks is enormous. They're, they're going on a killing spree. We're averaging now, and I hate to be speaking in averages, but we are anything between 400 to 500 people killed a day and a much larger number, double than that, injured. Do people understand what that means? And they're going to continue. They have a green light from the president of this country, or our president, to continue. He's speaking in our name. Our elected representatives are speaking in our name to continue. You know what? Even if you hate the Palestinian people, even if you don't see them as human beings, don't you have a heart? How can you justify this? Of course, we know how they justify it, you know, by describing everybody as terrorists or saying these are monsters or we're trying to separate civilians from military. All of these rhetorical conceits. The reality on the ground is very different. They're there to cover up the reality, actually to facilitate it happening. I've never seen a situation where there's an organized genocide. And I'm a historian. I've studied this for a long time. This is the only case I know of where there, there's organized genocide that is coordinated between multiple states. There's something very dangerous going on here. And an entire political class is complicit. I, I nevertheless... As in the midst of all of this, and in the midst of hearing stories of friends losing loved ones left, right, and center, entire families that I know that, that, that are dear to me, many of which live here in this city, 
in the midst of worrying about my friends in Gaza and calling them every day, trying to just to check on whether they're alive or not. I'm trying to cling to the belief. I'm an optimistic person, Dina. I've always been. There's a reason why I've been able to work on this for so long, 27 years, is that I am an optimist. I'm usually a smiley person. I smile a lot, even in these horrible circumstances. But you know what? I haven't been able to put a smile on my face for this past while. So, Dr. Tekriti, what is the next step? What do you hope to see now? So I really, really hope we can end this now. A ceasefire is the priority immediately. Okay, we need a hostage exchange to take place. The 200 Israeli hostages need to be exchanged for the 5,000 plus Palestinian hostages. This is a priority. Everybody needs to be released. Everybody needs to be free now. Okay, and that cannot happen without a ceasefire. There needs to be an end to the bombardment and the pounding of Gaza. There needs to be the initiation of a genuine political process, although I do not trust our leaders to be interested in a political process that will benefit the Palestinian people or actually uh, institute international law. For me, a real political process means apply international law and the UN resolutions on this matter, whether Israel likes it or not. Okay, And that means applying the law on refugees. All Palestinian refugees have to go back home. Israel has to accept it. Apply international law with regards to the UN Convention against apartheid, against genocide, against all of these issues. Have equal rights for Palestinians. Have the right to self-determination in the occupied territories. Equality for Palestinians in 1948. Why aren't we talking about this? Why don't I hear any politician talking about applying these principles? So this is the, the only way for the future. And if, if we want to be serious, then we should stick to this vision and demand that it takes place. And of course, after the immediate priority, which is complete cessation of hostilities, right now, right here, without delay. Dr. Cohen, Hannah, Dr. Takriti, thank you all for being here with me today on CityCast Houston. Thank you, Dina. Thank you. Thanks, Dina. That was Dr. Abdul Razak Takriti. Dr. Daniel Cohen and Hannah Thallenberg. I've linked their work in our show notes. That will do it for today. Thank you for listening, and I hope you learned something new. 